The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today with Dr. Pippa Malmgren. I'm pretty sure Harold is your father. Maybe I'm wrong yeah. on that. I've tried no, to. <laughs> I've actually tried to have him on a space. We have some technical difficulties, but I'm going to have him on at some point soon. But I know you, you've had a hell of a career, Pippa. But there's some people in this space who are not familiar with your background. So introduce yourself. Who are you? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Sure. Hi. So. I worked in the financial markets for a long time and ended up as the chief currency strategist at Bankers Trust and then the deputy head of global strategy at UBS. And from there, I went to the White House. I was on the National Economic Council for President George W. Bush. And I were handled, we had Enron and seven of the nine largest bankruptcies in American history in one year at that time. And then 9-11. So I worked on as well terrorism risk to the domestic economy. And then I went back into the private sector and decided instead of just talking about the world economy, I should be part of building it. And I ended up co-founding a robotics firm that was making aerial drones and autonomous vehicles. And then I started, I was writing books about the world economy and I do a lot of public speaking and I'm very active on Twitter on the big questions for me are always, I look at things holistically. So I'm interested in what's happening and that the cutting edge of the world economy, what does the world economy of tomorrow look like? And that means you have to take into consideration geopolitics, strategic security, technological innovation, and just a very broad view of what's happening on the landscape in order to understand tomorrow better. So you talk about the focus on things that can change the world. And if you're going to try and change the world, obviously you look to history and seems like there's always a, a juncture where something that's never happened before happens. You mentioned Enron, bankruptcies back then, 9-11, terrorism. There's no real playbook for that. So presumably everybody had to figure it out on the go. Yeah. How do you try to think about framing the world when it seems like we're constantly hit with things that aren't necessarily in the data? Well, so I came up with this concept a few years ago of signals which was very simple, that if you wait for the data to tell you what's going on, it's usually too late to do anything about it. So what you want are hints about the future that are not yet in the data, which I call signals. And I think if we open our eyes, we can see a lot of signals that are kind of anecdotes. So you can't prove it, but it's giving you a pretty good idea of what's coming. And 
maybe my best examples. Well, I wrote a book in 2016 or so called Signals, the Breakdown of the Social Contract and the Rise of Geopolitics, which then got retitled by the publisher. But bottom line, I said, look at every time you go to the checkout counter and you notice the candy bars keep getting smaller. And everybody was like, yeah, they do. What's up with that? I said, does that's an early indicator that inflation is building in the system because the input costs are rising. The company's afraid to pass on the higher price. And so they just give you less for the same amount of money. And that shrinkflation you'll see in many different ways. The micro apartments as a concept came to life, a million different things, but it kind of told you inflation was coming before you could actually see it. And similarly, I saw lots of signals around the beginning of the conflict that we currently have amongst the superpowers, which I want to talk about because People are so focused on Ukraine, they're missing the much, much wider story of how the conflict amongst the superpowers is playing out. And I've talked about we're in a hot war in cold places, meaning space, the Arctic, the high north. We're in a cold war in hot places, meaning Africa and across the Pacific. And this sort of broad, invisible war, you see little hints of it like submarine cables being cut that challenge, you know, the internet itself. These are hints about the future that are not yet in the data. So that's the way I think about it. So a lot that resonates to me because I often almost, in overly communicated this way, I often say that things are about conditions, right? Rather than predictions, you know, signals about conditions that might be changing. And the, the shrinkflation point is interesting, right? Because everyone has known it and felt it for a while, but unless you actually verbalize it the way you just did, they don't necessarily make the connection between that and inflation until it's outright said in that way. This point about the social contract, we'll get into the, the whole hot and cold war side of things, but this point about the social contract, I think is really important. I, I don't, is, is it a function of the social contract has been breaking down because in general, there's more skepticism, there's more distrust. There's more debt that creates distrust because now there's counterparty risk or is it because of attention span? And I say that very purposely because part of, I think, having a a social contract is having the ability to focus on what's happening in the real world as opposed to the entertainment that we're getting bombarded with daily. So let's first understand what I mean by the social contract, which is there are always a series of promises that have been made in a society like you can retire at 65 and, you know, get a pension or you pay your taxes and you'll get roads and an education system and a military. Like these implicit promises, we just totally take them for granted, but they vary from country to country. And one thing that doesn't vary is that when you have a massive debt burden, which we have virtually everywhere in the world today, one that's so large that you really can't pay it off, that starts to weigh on that series of social contracts. It basically starts to break down the social fabric. And when that happens, you start to see protest and angst and the loss of trust in government. And that is what's been happening in every case, even if the drivers may be different in China than they are in the U.S. than they are in, say, France. But it's the concepts that is useful to think about, I think. And I don't think it's, I think there is a new phenomena that it is caused by the modern debt burden and it's ever increasing, kind of exponentially increasing weight 
that bears down on us all. Yeah, and I've heard several people make the argument that inflation is very much tied to distrust in the government, right? So if a society does not believe the government can control inflation, it creates inflation, which becomes really dangerous, right? Kind of goes back to a lot of things that Powell talks about as far as the moral imperative of trying to break inflation, which maybe we can touch on. But the, okay, so let's get into this hot war in cold places. First of all, explain what that term is. I love the way it's framed, but explain that for the audience. Well, before the Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, we'd been having a series of events in space. And there's a real space race on between the superpowers, and they are racing to establish the first military base on the moon to have control of high altitude orbits. And so what had been happening was a number of things. On about January 6th, 7th, 2020, well before the tanks came into Ukraine, someone cut what is the fastest internet cable connection in the world, which is inside the Arctic Circle on a place called Svalbard in Norway. And you ask, why is this in this incredibly remote location? And the answer is because virtually all of the high altitude satellites connect to Earth at Svalbard. So if you take that cable out, no more satellite guidance either for your military operations, which means, you know, no missile guidance. And it also kind of means no more Uber Eats. It's a, it was a hell of a, you know, volley across the bow of the West to say that they were, whoever did it, which of course we think is the Russians, was a hell of a signal that we are not kidding around. And at that time, you know, they were massing on the Ukrainian border and the consensus view in the West was this is a bluff. And I'm like, you know what? It's not a bluff when that event is occurring. And similarly, we've had other events in space in the last few years, like the Russians blew up one of their own aging weather satellites. And you can't really blame them for that. It's their own. But what it was designed to do is to create a massive debris field that is full of shrapnel that's often described as razor blades in a washing machine. It's called the Kessler effect. And it's designed to keep other parties out of those orbits. So in the space race, denial of access to orbits is a thing. And similarly, the U.S. and China both have satellites with robotic arms. And I think both sides have been demonstrating to the other that we can go up to a satellite, grab it. And, and this kind of space war isn't really reported, number one, because there are no journalists in space. Number two, most of it's classified. Number three, when it comes into the public domain, no one has an overarching narrative, a story to explain why this matters. And so you may see it in the press, but if you're not looking for space stories, you won't see it. And you certainly don't connect the dots to we're having a superpower conflict. It's not a localized conflict in Ukraine. That's a symptom of a much larger phenomenon. And then in the Arctic, there's been a lot of contesting of physical spaces. The Russians and Norwegians are staring each other down over the deployment of nuclear weapons on submarines and ships. Um, we've had lots of events in the high north, as I call it, which means really from Kaliningrad north, which is part of Russia. And now I've further talked about events a bit further south, like the Sulwaki Gap. But, but the north and the high north, was not on people's radar screen. They were focused on Ukraine when, in fact, there were a huge number of very strategically important events occurring in that domain. So that's the hot war in the cold places. And then the cold war in the hot places, we're seeing more clearly now 
where you see the Wagner Group very active all through Africa, but particularly across what they call the Sahel, which is the Sahara countries, where they've been behind a number of coups and challenging existing governments. And all of that is about getting access to cash flows, resources that are needed to conduct the events in Ukraine. And yet we don't connect the dots on that or understand that that's part of the reason Crimea is so important because that's one of the critical entryways for the African cash flows to enter Russia. And then finally in the Pacific, and General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has said we're in the midst of an insignificant military buildup in the Pacific. And he's totally right about that. The U.S. is building new military bases in case Guam was ever damaged and frankly, because it's behind the times. So there's a huge new military base going in at Tinian, which is an island on that same island chain. The Chinese are reaching to islands like the Solomon Islands, cutting military deals with them. And so, yeah, we have a huge military buildup happening in the Pacific that's not exclusively about Taiwan, but about something much broader. And when you take all of that into consideration, this is why I've argued for the last couple of years, and I know it sounds dramatic, but hear me out, that we are already in World War III. But the good news is this war has been taking place principally in domains the public cannot see. It's happening principally through technology. And it's also not in the main other than Ukraine involving humans battling on the ground. And maybe this is, if you're going to have a world war, this is not the worst way to have it. But failing to recognize that you are in the midst of a conflict that involves more nations than were involved at the height of World War II, then you are clearly misunderstanding what is the nature of the geopolitical situation we are actually in. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense that the mainstream media wouldn't necessarily emphasize uh, the space war side of it because... It was like a like a like a video game that's not impacting people. Even, it's fantastical, and, and I, I don't I don't obviously you know much more well versed than I am. But it, you know it's it's one of those things where it's, it I don't see people would think that impacts their day to day lives until you have something like an Uber Eats, like you just well, said. that's why I say Uber Eats. Then they all go, "What? Are you serious?" And I'm like, "Yeah. I mean, where do you think?" It's like they think electricity comes out of the plug in the wall. Where do you think all of our economy comes from? It's satellite guidance systems. So, of course, there's a fight. Like, give me give an example. So China said to Elon Musk and Starlink, you guys are supplying the Ukrainians with, with satellite systems. And we consider that to be a military effort. And Starlink said, no, 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 we're just providing humanitarian services. And the Chinese went, no, you're not. They're using it for offensive operations. At which point Starlink both kind of, uh, I'll, I'll get this technically not right, but basically limited the bandwidth on for Ukraine. And second, Elon went to Beijing to have a conversation because the Chinese said, if you keep this up, we're going to launch a mega constellation of satellites, but ours will be armed and they will be designed to either damage or destroy the Starlink mega constellation. And so 
next thing, Elon's in China. They're trying to sort this out so that we don't have to have that space war. And the public has kind of missed that, you know, this is for real. So, yeah, it's because we live in a society where people are kind of ignorant of the science of what supports their daily life. And, and it sounds like, I mean, not to overly simplify, but it's it's really a, 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 at the core a data war, right? In terms of all this. And, and that also has other implications. I mean, I've had some people that talk about, you know, how, for example, the data collected from TikTok is used to manipulate uh, a younger generation to maybe have certain uh, political beliefs or certain uh, leanings in the way they think about the world. Yeah, you know, that's a good, it's a crucial point. This is about bits and data and who gets to gather it from where. I mean, the, the Ukraine war is our first digital war. And that doesn't mean there aren't human losses. It means the way the strategy is being conducted is through computers and satellites and infrastructure where it's about imagery. It's about, you know, I mean, we did this in World War II as well, but not on the same scale, not at all on the same scale. So I think this is the first modern digital war that we're witnessing. So people are still adjusting. I find on these Twitter spaces, so often people are talking about World War II tactics, like where are you going to move the tanks? But the real issue is that Russia has shown us that you can weaponize food and energy. And Western militaries are not accustomed to thinking about food prices as part of the strategic landscape. But when I lecture to them, I'm like, okay, guys, which does more damage, a Russian tank or raising oil and food prices? answer, raising oil and food prices really damages citizens in the West and elsewhere. A tank, you know, doesn't have that much impact. But it's super hard for militaries to readjust and say tanks don't matter anymore or not as much as they used to. But commercial food prices do, right? It's just a different way of thinking. And we haven't really modernized our strategic thinking to keep up with technology. I love that point, right? There, there's sort of this embedded mindset around you need more weaponry rather than maybe reallocating those resources that are creating the tanks and weaponry to uh, deglobalization, to you know, having things more within our own borders. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's military doctrine, nothing for. Our military doctrines are not keeping up. So again, Russia and China have modernized their military doctrine to say, Pretty much anything goes. I think the Chinese call it unrestricted warfare and the Russians sometimes say unlimited warfare. But it means anything can be weaponized. Anything is game. All the old rules of the game of how you do this are out the window. And you can use private armies. You can involve civilians. You can, you know, use information as a weapon. All these things are happening day to day, and we still don't have a way of talking about them holistically. We we, instu- we, we still view them as kind of abram how wars are normally fought. You mentioned. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. 
Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Cold War in hot places, particularly Africa, and a lot of people that note that you know, it's increasingly, you know, having more influence on Africa for a lot of reasons, you know, relative to the West. Is there any sort of interesting dynamic that's been happening more recently in, in the last several years as it relates to the importance of Africa as it come, goes to commodities and, and China and geopolitics? So I actually think that China's influence in Africa has been declining because Slowly, Africans have begun to realize that the deals they were cutting with the Chinese were not so favorable. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the the offer was from China, we'll build you a port or a road or a railway link if you give us access to whatever commodities are, whether that's gold or, you know, foodstuffs or whatever that might be. We'll, we'll do a trade. And so you give us 30 years worth of whatever that food is and we'll build this thing for you. And then what happened was they said, well, but you also have to help us finance this. So you need to pay us up front for that port. And then was the port built well? Was it built with lots of steel or just with concrete? Well, it turns out in many cases it was subpar construction standards. So it starts to crumble in three years, but you still owe them 30 years worth of, you know, your best fruit. And people started to go away. This is not working. And then lots of the debt started to come unstuck as these countries couldn't pay the Chinese. And when China went to take possession of the port in, um, oh gosh, I'm just not remembering his name. I think it's Uganda. No, sorry, in Tanzania, the port. And they went, well, now it belongs to us because you've defaulted on the payments. And everybody went, wait a minute, you can't take physical possession of a nation's only, you know, international point of contact. And China went, well, yeah, you can because that was the deal. And so there's a reluctance now. However, China still has built much of the physical infrastructure. And I think the deal between Russia and China is that the Russians, particularly the private armies, Wagner Group, they guard those facilities and get paid a fee for that service. And China provides the facilities. And so then the question is, how do African nations feel about the Russian presence? And the answer is some of them are loving it and some of them are hating it. And there's a split. And it's not a coincidence that the U.S. has increased its physical presence of special operations folks in Africa very, very dramatically in recent years. But nobody describes what's happening in Africa as a fight, a third party proxy fight between the U.S. or NATO and Russia. But I think that is what is occurring. Speaking about special operations, that's maybe a good transition to uh, something you talk about, which is the Oppenheimer problem, which is actually really interesting in the way you, you frame it. But explain what that Oppenheimer problem is. I think this actually becomes really um, intriguing in terms of hit us from out of nowhere that nobody even has any awareness of. Yeah. So for those, you know, you've all probably seen the movie by now, Oppenheimer, about the Manhattan Project and 
the rush to build the atomic bomb so that we could bring World War II to a close. Well, in the recent decades, particularly since 9-11, when I was in the White House, we've had an imposition of secrecy on an epic scale to the point that there are lots and lots of what they call black budget projects in the intelligence and defense community. And so if you think about it, we've had the best scientists in the West, in the United States, funded by almost an unlimited amount of money because, you know, huge amount of defense spending in recent years. And a lot of it went into high tech, which, you know, you can see, for example, when Silicon Valley Bank hit the wall, who was the most vocal in finding a buyer for it so that the companies supported by it wouldn't go out of business, answer the Pentagon and DARPA. Because these days, all the most significant innovation is not coming from defense contractors. It's coming from small startups who are producing extraordinary outcomes. So have we got a situation now where we've been funding really cutting-edge science, really cutting-edge technology, all in secret? So we don't have a single Manhattan Project. We have many of them. We don't have a single Oppenheimer. We have many Oppenheimers. And is it possible that they're doing pretty edgy things as Oppenheimer did? Because remember, to, to do what he did, he had to risk igniting the entire atmosphere of Earth. And when he was asked, are you sure that Earth will be safe if you let off the atomic weapon? And he said, the chances are near zero that we'll have a problem. And everybody's like, wait, what do you mean near zero? The answer is, you, that's what you do at the cutting edge of science. You take these risks because the reward is so high, but what's the cost? And so today, I just wonder, you know, how much money has gone into secret research that, of course, the other superpowers are aware of. And so their fear factor of each other and what does the other guy have is much higher than we appreciate. And that partly accelerates the competition amongst the superpowers. It's the fear and the belief that they have some incredible weapon system that we don't know about. And so, and remember, we've all given up mutual weapons inspections with the, the traditional frameworks for that between the East and Russia. U.S. and China are all now broken and not working. To reset the roof, there are many minutes here. Everybody, please make sure you follow, follow Dr. Pippa Malmgren here. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be an edited podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. Yeah, it's funny, as I'm listening to you talk about edgy things and these, these uh, dynamics kind of that are uh, very quietly happening and nobody's really paying attention, it takes me to uh, the alien and UFO hearings. Uh, and, and and I'll tell you why I say that. You know, it, 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 it's very weird to me. I mean, aside from the fact that it almost became a joke when the balloons were uh, getting the media that you know, maybe it's UFOs, right? And, you know, it's China, right? And then you have this whole dynamic that, oh, we have aliens. I don't know. It's almost like it was almost, uh, I hate to say it, like a purposeful campaign to sort of get people to be uh, numb to things that maybe the U.S. government on. Uh, under the guise that it's something that's extraterrestrial when it means, you know, something like Snoppenheimer you know, type of dynamics. So uh, let me start by saying this subject, I did not imagine ever in my entire life that I would be 
getting involved in this subject. But as a former, you know, White House official and someone who is watching the cutting edge of technology very closely, it is impossible to ignore that not only has the U.S. Congress been holding five years of private hearings where they've heard from many, many government employees with high level classifications and clearances about that work in this kind of secret space that I'm talking about. And to be clear, I'm not saying that all of it is related to that subject. So I'm just saying some of it is related to that subject. And then they held public hearings, the first in 50 years. And then the most important part is Congress has produced actual legislation on the issue. So what they're saying is we're now demanding that all agencies of government hand over everything they have on this subject, that we will prosecute you if you don't hand it over within a certain period of time. There's a whistleblower protection. So now people can come forward that in the past, if you were to say, well, actually, there is something happening here, they would have immediately thrown you into a military tribunal and then into a military prison. And we never would have even heard your name. So now the whistleblowers are coming forward. One of them is called David Gruss, who's had a lot of profile. But what people are not getting is he's one of many. He's just the first in a very, very long line of people. And so you can't really say this is all a joke. And in fact, it's interesting because people say, well, when do you think the government's going to tell us? that there is this thing called non-human intelligence, which is the phrase that they're using. And I'm like, well, you know, Senator Schumer's new legislation uses that word, that phrase 22 times. And we've now had two White House press conferences where Admiral Kirby has been asked this question by a member of the White House press corps saying, isn't it kind of a joke? And Kirby responds, why would we be standing up a whole division of the Pentagon to study this if we thought it was a joke. Of course, it's not a joke. The Air Force has said UAPs are real. We are coordinating with the Five Eyes allies on this subject. They are global and worldwide. NASA gave a press conference, which was so boring, everyone nearly died of boredom listening to it. And then they dropped one little thing, which was UAPs are real. And just to finish on this, now we have our top Navy pilots our top gun instructors who are triangulating on the phenomena using a variety of different modern sensor systems. They're using FLIR cameras, they're using infrared, they're using radar, they have multiple sets of highly experienced pilot eyes. And so no one can say this is your imagination because we have the data that shows it's cross-triangulated by these sophisticated sensors. And Ryan Graves, who I think is a very, very commendable person, who is one of our fighter, top fighter pilots and who has led the way on this, he realized, he said, look, we see these things every single day off of both coastlines of the United States. And they move at speeds we can't explain. We have the proof now that we're not imagining it. But if we take this to the Pentagon, they're going to say, you guys have lost your marbles and ripped your pilot's license from you. So instead, He cleverly decided, let's approach the Pentagon and say this is a health and safety issue for our most expensive, most sophisticated pilots and aircraft. That they can't ignore. And so that was the beginning of all this bubbling into the public domain. 
Now, is this what they call, you know, Project Blue Book, which is government is all making this up in order to distract the public from many other things? I personally can't see how that's possible because there are many, many other sources of data and information about this that don't that don't coincide with that possibility. But is it possible that it's both real and governments making stuff up in order to, you know, muddy the waters? Yeah, sure. So look, this is a very complicated space. But when I hear the U.S. Senate say, as Senator Gillibrand has repeatedly said, given that we are in this geopolitical environment that I've described, we're effectively in World War III. We have the Chinese sending aerial devices over the United States, and they are followed by three unidentified aerial phenomena, anomalous phenomena, we can no longer say, sorry, I don't know what it is. She's like, you have to give me an answer. Now, I don't care if you tell me it's the Russians, you tell me it's the Chinese, you tell me it's non-human intelligence, whatever, let's get an answer. And if that means bringing science to this, then let's do it immediately. And I think that's the right approach to the subject. So nobody is saying we know the answers, but we are getting people with extremely high clearances and incredible life experience telling us things. And the question is, why are we so quick to say this is ridiculous when the White House is saying it's ridiculous to think that given that we are doing all this work on the issue? So something is going on. And I think it's a test of our curiosity. I personally think if there is something to the non-human intelligence, that is this the way we want to begin a conversation with a higher intelligence is to shoot at it? <laughs> like, there's some human questions here. And how does humanity want to progress into this tricky space is, I think, a valid area of inquiry. The science question, is it real? And the human question, how do we contend with whatever this is? Yeah, I mean, if we're already in World War Three, you don't want War of the World. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. At the you, same time, the exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but, okay, so, but hold on. So, so uh, and, and uh, it doesn't sound to me like there would be ever an end under that sort of way of thinking about uh, where we're at currently. I mean, if we're in World War Three and it's largely, you know, data and, and technology and, you know, things which are not human conflict, there is no end to that, is there? Well, you would have said that about the introduction of machine guns, you know, aircraft for war fighting. I think there is always an end. And in fact, you know, my dad was an advisor to four presidents and many prime ministers, and he was in the room during the Cuban Missile Crisis as one of the key uh, advisors on the actual nuclear weapons systems and their trajectories. And so he and I have talked a lot about this and that 
uh, the way these things always end is the same. It is inevitable. It always ends in a hug. And I mean an actual hug. And you see this, like the image of Brezhnev and Nixon hugging, the image of Gorbachev and Reagan having a huge hug. And you're like, oh, my God, they are. It's, but it's impossible. You can't imagine the leaders of Russia, China, and the United States today having a hug. But I could easily imagine their successors will. And the reason is because once you really get up close with the possibility of a nuclear exchange, basically everyone always loses their nerve. They don't want to destroy the planet. They don't want to never see their loved ones again. They realize the consequences are so enormous. And so what's your only option at that point? It is to find a solution. And I do think that the tougher the rhetoric gets, the more contentious it gets, the more we hear of the potential for nuclear threats, we start to hear China saying, no, 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 we don't want to have that happen. Let's, let's talk constructive negotiations. Well, what does that take you to? It takes you to a hug. Now, it's not an easy road to get to that photographic image, but I would bet a lot of money that we'll end up in that place. It may take a few years. It may take some changes of the leadership of the superpowers, but I think that's where we're going going to end up. I am fairly sure I am not going to ever hug Putin. No, <laughs> no, I know. No, no, but I hear you. I, hear you. I know, I know. But you know, if if that was the if you knew that that solution would bring an end to the hostility, question is, would you do it? Not publicly. <laughs> but but actually, that is that is a good transition to to another. Uh, other area that you want to focus on is just the idea of ending conflict. And yet you, you had brought up this idea of you know, why Ukraine and Taiwan get resolved together. So I think most people contextualize the two as being separate. Uh, but do. it sounds like there's, a, there's something that you're seeing that could resolve it uh, all at once. Yeah, I, they do. Well, because, of course, they look at Ukraine as a freestanding thing that gets resolved on its own merits. But once President Putin started threatening nuclear weapons and the Chinese came out and said, no, 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 we're not comfortable with that. Then China began to emerge as a peace broker in this process. And I think they want to be a peace broker in this process and they don't want that outcome. And so they start to indicate, you know, let's find a way around this. But of course, we've got a price. And their price is they want some resolution on Taiwan and some other issues that are important to them. So it's a kind of like, we'll help on Ukraine if you give us some something on Taiwan. And so a dialogue is beginning about, you know, how to resolve both. And I, I, I would say I could make the case that at the beginning of this China and Russia first aligned. And people were very surprised by that in the West. You know, did China encourage Russia to do this in Ukraine? Maybe. And frankly, China got incredible intelligence out of the events in Ukraine, right? By, by Russia throwing that punch and starting a, that barroom brawl, China got to witness all of the most valuable things you can have from an intelligence perspective. What are the reaction times? What is the positioning of physical assets? How does the public react? Like they get to see exactly how NATO and the West would respond. 
And that's really valuable for considering what might be the reaction in Taiwan. More recently, they've been holding military events around Taiwan, circling the island, um, cutting the internet cable that connects Taiwan to the world. These are also kind of tests to see what is the reaction, you know, who's positioned where. And so the realization that, okay, what are we really up against? And could we actually have a kinetic traditional military site? And I think the honest answer is that nobody in the Chinese military or the U.S. military wants to see that fight happen. And militaries are actually about making sure that fight doesn't happen, ironically, right? That's the real purpose of all this weaponry and showing it off is to say, don't even cross this line. It's not worth the risk. And so now does China say to Taiwan, if you don't agree, you'll end up as another Ukraine. And do you really want that? And so is it a way of putting pressure on the Taiwanese to come to an accommodation? It serves that purpose, whether or not it was intended. And will China say, we'll help navigate Putin getting out of Ukraine if you help navigate Taiwan coming to a better arrangement with us? Will ultimately the U.S. move in that direction? It comes down to the question, are Americans willing to go to war over Taiwan? And this is an open question. It's going to be a question in the presidential race. But I think the answer is the American public has been ever increasingly exhausted with foreign wars. It's now preoccupied with domestic issues. It keeps being more and more insular with each president who comes along. And so do people want to cut some sort of a deal that gets the U.S.? you know, no longer on the hook for either Taiwan or Ukraine, and yet doesn't mean giving them away, sacrificing them, walking away. It just means how do you reach a deal that everybody can live with, at least for a period of time, that stops the bloodshed and allows for diplomacy to work? So, you know, Otto von Bismarck was the Iron Chancellor in Germany and who knew more about diplomacy than anyone alive today. And he said, Diplomacy is the art of building ladders for others to climb down. And so it's not to say that you forgive the other side for starting this fight. You don't. But you also recognize if you don't provide an exit, then you will continue to be in a battle. So which is smarter for the society? Which is smarter for the country? And so that's why I say, I think, because China's saying, let's address all of these together not just one at a time, then chances are that is how this gets resolved as a kind of package deal. And um, I know that sounds very surprising to people, but I find it something that it's surprising. Like, welcome to how superpowers operate. This, this is how they have traditionally done things. And why are we surprised it's happening this way again? There are some who would argue that the state of China's economy, youth unemployment, all that is sort of a precursor for some kind of armed conflict just to sort of lift the spirit of anything of you know, uh, Chinese citizens. Is there anything to that idea that, you know, if you want to get nationalism, you, you start a war? I mean, when it comes to China, because it just seems like there's a lot of really nasty dynamics going on economically for them. Well, I've argued that for a long time, that 
China doesn't really want a war with the West over Taiwan, but the threat of a war over Taiwan is very useful for imposing order on your domestic opponents and your domestic citizens at a time when the economy is not delivering on its promises. Again, they have a social contract problem and inflation has made it much worse where the citizens don't believe they're going to be rich before they get old anymore, which leads immediately to the question, why are you in charge? Because what are you delivering? And this is why we see Xi gathering the forces of power in China more aggressively, eliminating his opponents, making the intelligence services and the military uh, more independent of the polyp and the, the political constructs and reporting to him personally, not to the state. All of that is about how does he get to stay in charge when things are not going well? And there's nothing like a war that uh, nobody can challenge you when you're conducting a war. So it's a useful threat. Is it actually useful to go to war is a very different question. And I don't think that that would be the best way to secure Xi Jinping's uh, continued leadership myself. That's, that is the open question is what's the relationship now between Xi and the Politburo? And will it continue? It's the same question, by the way, in Russia. What's the relationship between the military and the leader and the Secret Service? And, you know, where are the opposing lines? And, you know, not everybody is happy in all these countries with their leaders. And let's face it, in the United States, not everybody's happy with the leader we have in the United States at any given time either. It's just our ability to navigate through difficult leadership is maybe a bit easier. But in each case, we all have citizens and leaders that are not all on the same page. So maybe for the remaining few minutes here, anybody, again, please follow, make sure you follow Dr. Pippa Malmgren here on Twitter slash X. You and your father are obviously highly intelligent, educated you know, thought leaders and have had phenomenal and incredible careers. Uh, I've got to assume that there are things that you've disagreed with him. Uh, oh, yeah. He's so, my dad, you know, so father comes, right? Right, right. So, so I am maybe just maybe just have a little fun with it or, or not. But, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, you fundamentally disagreed with in terms of the way that your own father, uh, in terms of the way he views the world? Oh, the, we, we tend to disagree only on one thing, which is I tend to be much more of an optimist. And he tends to see things in a more pessimistic way. So he always sees a bigger slowdown when the slowdown is in motion. I tend to see the upside. Like, so for example, in the last year, well, since COVID, right? Everybody's been on the recession that's coming. It's all going to end in tears. And I've been one of the very few economists to say, I don't think we're going to have a recession. And I actually think we're seeing an incredible reallocation of capital from businesses that were not working to things that are generating extraordinary cash flows and technological outcomes. So I think actually it's going to be okay. Now, in the last two weeks, we've had big, big banks like JP Morgan drop their call for a recession. So I'm like, hey, that, I think that I, I called that one. But at the same time, there has been a lot of damage along the way. And so my dad's pessimism that the damage is severe post-COVID. He's right. The damage is severe. 
I tend to focus on, yeah, but you've got to kill the stuff that's not working in order to create the stuff that does. And I'm more optimistic about that upside. So usually that's it's it's about angle and timing more than anything. I think that might also have to do with age. <laughs> I think in general, you're probably, you know, really inferior. Sorry, I mean, you know, older people tend to be more pessimistic, more down. I mean, you know, younger people tend to be more optimistic. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but we, we always have wonderful conversations and we should get him on. He's a wellspring of knowledge and, and historical perspectives and insight. He's incredible. He's on um, at Al's, at Hal's Rethink on uh, Twitter. Yeah, he's on my list to try it back. Um, I, I, we, I had started a space with him, but there were some technical difficulties. Oh. Um, Pippa, for those who want to uh, track more of your thoughts, kind of learn more about how you view the world, where would you point them to? So I write a column on Substack under Dr. Pippa's Pet and Podcast, which is where I sketch out these big concepts like the hot war and cold places. And then I'm very active on Twitter. Um, I put stuff up on LinkedIn. I've got everything's under at Dr. Pippa M as my social media handle. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Dr. Pippa here. And hopefully I will see you all later. And make sure you check out her Substack as well. Uh, thank you, Pippa. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.